So before we jump into the teaching today, I have the distinct honor and privilege to invite a friend up who uh, has recently published a book of prayers and poems. Everybody, this is our beloved Lee Anglin. Can you welcome Lee? Spin you around here. You can trust me. There you go. There you go. So Lee published this book last year. And we've been looking for a time, and today's the time. So I will tell you this. As he reads this, you're going to think, how do I get my copy of Lee's book? Well, there are two left because the 9 o'clock just cleaned them out. Um, but I think there are more, so you, you can talk to them about how to get yeah. those. Yeah, there are more. <laughs> <laughs> I just want to say several things. First, this, is, this book is way too long. Nobody should write a book 373 pages long. But it's a very good book. I like about 85% of it. Uh, it consists of, of poetry and prayers from the Psalms. I studied uh, the Psalms just on my own for about 25 years. And while I was doing that, I wrote some prayers, and the, as it turned out, there were 505 of them. They aren't all here, uh, but they're good. I can't write that well. Uh, somehow, it seems they turned out okay. And I want to read one of them. By the way, if you should buy a book, um, read... Uh, poem on page 140. Uh, honestly, that's my love poem to Carol. And, and uh, still love her. I wrote this about 25 years ago. In, in old age, Lord, keep me from imagining once upon a time I was a better person than I am now or doing greater things than I do today. Teach me how to live creatively in real time now, rather than to pass the hours away dreaming of days gone by. Focus me on your hope for the wide world, not on my petty past accomplishment. Show me still the dissimilarity between wanting it all and having enough. Hold me on the right side of the fine line between personal arrogance and high confidence in you. Give me to know and live with quiet heart instead of big head. Put these feet solidly on the ground of true wisdom, removing from them any hint of conceit or rudeness. Prevent me trying to rule the roost and bend me towards serving the least of these. My need, Lord, is not to think fanciful thoughts, but to live your fruitful plans on behalf of others. Instruct me to these ends by your word, Lord, that I may seek your mind and walk in your light. 
I love you. Amen. Everybody, Lee Anglin. If you're a 6th through 12th grader, you can head down with Jeff to your class. Um, all right. And, and so there, there is a possibility to get more books for people if they yes. get on a list or... Okay, okay. So if you see them at the table on the way out and they're happy to help you with that. Oh, it is so good to see you. Let's take just a minute before we jump in. Uh, we're in a series called Rhythm, and we've been talking about that as people who have largely deconstructed or unraveled in some way, some of the things that used to be part of our spiritual practice seem a little bit confusing. And so we started by talking about Sabbath, establishing a rhythm of work and rest. Uh, last week, we talked about prayer, and I said prayer is one of the elephants in the room. Um, we had a great uh, discussion about that at Reconstruct, which will hopefully see the light of day pretty soon on the internet. And then today, we're going to talk about what I maybe call the other, maybe slightly larger elephant in the room, which would be the Bible. But before we jump into that, let's just take a moment and just sort of, uh, in, in lieu of me saying a prayer at this point, I just want to create a moment of silence for us to just be. If there's something you want to pray about, you can do that, and then I'll say amen and we'll launch into it. Does that sound fair? All right, let's just take a moment. And everybody said, amen. amen. So Marcus Borg, who uh, this past week made the fifth an- make, marked the fifth anniversary of his passing, and what a loss to the church. Marcus Borg said this, conflict about how to see and read the Bible is the single greatest issue dividing Christians. Have you found that to be true? Who, who in this room has ever been in an argument about religion that centered on people yelling Bible verses at each other? <laughs> Right? I mean, it just seems like the go-to, oh, yeah, it's sort of like, oh, yeah, well, I'll one-up you with this Bible verse, which is slightly more violent and slightly more damning or something like that. Um, And there's a reason why. I mean, the Bible has a checkered past, right? No no wonder people have conflict about the Bible. The Bible has brought a lot of pain and trauma into a lot of people's lives over the years. For some people, even seeing a Bible can make them sort of uncomfortable, right, because of all the ways it has been used in our world to promote misogyny, homophobia, anti-intellectualism, xenophobia, anti-environment, racism, white supremacy, all of those things have been justified by people opening a Bible and pointing to a chapter and a verse and saying, this verse says this, so we can then do that, right? Right? All sorts of terrible things. Um, In the late 90s, early 2000s, there was a movie came out that was called Saved. Did anybody see the movie Saved? Okay. It's... The rest of you who haven't, um, you should definitely see it. It's, 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 a, it's a tongue-in-cheek, sort of a parody of evangelical culture, teenage evangelical culture at that time. And at the time, you know, seeing the parody, I was like, gosh, we have so far to go. But like, compared to today, it's totally tame. Um, and the reality, so the story centers around a young teenage girl named Mary who ends up being pregnant by suspicious circumstances. Does this story sound familiar to anybody? And she goes to a Christian high school, and everybody's worried about her because she's backsliding. 
And there's this moment you're going to see, uh, I'm going to show a clip, there's this moment where sort of the, the principal slash pastor is trying to round up some of his sort of best students to go and do sort of an outreach rescue mission of this young Mary who's lost her way. So check, check this clip out. Hey, ladies. Sorry. Uh, you got a yeah. Listen, I'm concerned about Mary. Something's going on. Yeah, me too. Well, she's part of your posse, and I think that you can help her. I'm going to need you to be a warrior out there on the front lines for Jesus. You mean like shoot her? <laughs> no, no, no. I was, I was uh, thinking of something a little less gangster. I need someone who's spiritually armed to help guide her back to her faith. The love and care that only Jesus can supply. You down with that? Yeah, I'm down with that. She's pretty vulnerable right now, so I'm gonna need you to be extra gentle. Don't you just hate it when other people are jealous of your success in the Lord? Is that, is that a thing? Does that resonate? My word. And there's a part of it that's funny, right? But there's a part of it that's also like, oh, that, that actually rings a little true. I mean, did anybody in your youth group experience ever get loaded up in a church van and dropped off on random places to take the bracelets you made in the church basement to, like, force people? Like, it's sort of tongue-in-cheek, but it's also like, oh, we have some of those experiences. And in almost all of those experiences, the Bible ends up being weaponized. And it ends up being weaponized to oppress, marginalized, shame, uh, create all sorts of drama and trauma and all those things that stay with us forever and ever and ever. So, so, of course, we have some issues with the Bible. And no wonder people have walked away from it. And no wonder people are saying, gosh, I don't think I can give my time and energy to this anymore. It's so fraught with problems. But also, the Bible has been used in really beautiful ways, on the flip side. I mean, lots of movements toward equity and equality, movements toward inclusion, movements toward the embrace of a wider and wider understanding of God's love have all, also all been grounded in an understanding of the Bible. The same Texts, people would point to one text to say God doesn't love everybody, and then other people would say, no, no, all these texts say God does, and that God's table is bigger than we ever imagined. Like, that's a, that's a real tension that exists within the text. I grew up with the Bible. Uh, my childhood was spent memorizing passages of the Bible to get prizes at Sunday school. Um, and I, I was pretty daggone good at it, too, right? Like, I memorized, I got a whole collection of G.I. Joes one year. Just from, which seems a little complicated. I get it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I did because I memorized more Bible verses than anybody else. So I've lived my life studying the Bible. Um, and I did the thing they told me to do. 
which was, I was always told, you need to read the Bible. Right? Reading the Bible is central to your Christian journey, or we would say your, your walk with the Lord. Right? That's central. I did the thing they told me to do. I read the Bible, and I read it and read it and read it. And when I started reading it, I started going, wow, that doesn't sound anything like what I've been hearing. Right? And actually, maybe it's saying something else. Maybe it's not saying this. Maybe it's saying this. And then they were mad because I did the thing they told me to do, which was read the Bible. Right? And so what I want to do today is I'm not going to say, like, everybody here needs to start a daily Bible regimen and go home and read through the Bible in a year. Like, that's not the thing. There are some of us in this room who've been so wounded by the Bible that to pick it up would just be sort of a betrayal of the process. And so do not hear me saying that today. I want to talk today about how, for those of us in the room who have given up on the Bible or are almost giving up on the Bible, who experience grief around that, um, I want to maybe give us a way of thinking about the Bible that can begin to make it seem like something we can engage in, something that we could not be embarrassed about. Does that make, sound fair? So, the biggest problem the Bible has are the expectations we put on it. Hands down. The biggest problem the Bible has are the expectations we put on it. We bring expectations to the Bible about what it is, about what it's trying to do, about where it came from, all those things. We put those expectations on the Bible, and then it functions the way it functions because we expect it to. But I actually don't think these expectations that at least I grew up with, some of the ones I want to share, I don't think they actually are fair, and I don't actually think that the Bible seeks to do any of the things we think it wants to do. For example, the Bible did not miraculously fall out of the sky. I I don't know if this is news to you, but as a 10-year-old, I would have bet money that the first Bible fell out of the sky, leather-bound, gilded edges, of course, in the King James Version that Jesus spoke, like, that's where the Bible would have come from. It would have just dropped out of the sky, and it would have had my name on it. Anybody ever had a Bible with your name on it? Yeah, anybody ever had your name misspelled on the Bible with your name on it? That's a real, that's a real hazard. And so we, we sort of just have this assumption that the Bible sort of came from somewhere. When in reality, the Bible was the product of two communities, the ancient Jewish community and the early Christian community. Those two communities produced the Bible, and they did it over a period of about a 1,000 years. So from the first documents to the oldest documents in the Hebrew Scriptures to the last documents in the New Testament, which most people think was Second Peter sometime in the 2nd century, mid-early 2nd century, those documents were produced over a 1,000-year period. So the oldest parts of the Bible are around 3,000 years old, and the newest parts of the Bible are around 2,000 years old. So these communities created these. And by the way, nobody knew they were writing the Bible. It wasn't like somebody woke up on a random Tuesday and was like, oh, I'm behind schedule on my part of the Bible today. I really need to buckle down. Right? Nobody knew they were writing things that would be passed around. The letters of Paul that, that get so much play, Paul had no idea he was writing anything that people would look at beyond the people he sent it to. They're letters, specific situational letters to communities going through stuff that got held onto and passed around, and now we have them today. But the Bible didn't just fall out of the sky. Another, the Bible isn't basic instructions before leaving earth. Anybody ever seen that billboard with the acrostic? Like, you need to read your Bible to get the basic instructions before leaving earth. Here's the thing. The Bible is not about leaving earth. The Bible is very much about what happens on the earth. The Bible is about how we live together in community. The Bible is about how we treat the least, the poor, the marginalized. The Bible is about how we respond to the great needs and hurts and traumas of the world. The Bible is essentially trying to point us out to the world to say there's real stuff and real work to be done. And you know you've read the Bible well when it doesn't make you think about heaven, but it pushes you into the world to actually begin to do some of those good things that the Bible's inviting us to do. The Bible's not instructions about leaving earth for somewhere else. The Bible also 
isn't univocal, it's multivocal. And what I mean by that is the Bible isn't just one voice, but many voices. And of course, the one voice we always assume, like, who's the author of the Bible? God. Right? That's sort of the assumption, and that's sort of what some of us have been taught. But the reality is what we know after studying these texts for hundreds of years now, with really good literary criticism methods and all that, is that the Bible's made up of lots of voices. And those voices are often in tension with each other. For example, the first five books of the Bible are called the Torah or the Pentateuch. That's Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. Every time I do that somewhere, I'm always afraid I'm going to forget one of them. But I got them all. Um, See, my Sunday school training paid off after all. These first five books of the Bible, everybody generally had assumed Moses had written them. They were attributed to Moses. But what we found out several hundred years ago was actually if you begin to look at these texts, you'll begin to realize that there are different sources that have been stitched together by an editor to make these stories and to make the Torah a thing. So even inside the Torah, it's not just one voice. There are at least four voices. And sometimes those voices disagree on names, times, places, all sorts of things. Sometimes they just take different positions. The Bible isn't one voice speaking. It's many voices entering into a sacred discussion. So uh, another example, when you come to the the books like Proverbs, Job, so the book of Proverbs essentially says if you're a good person and you do all the right things, only good things will happen to you. So it's an equation. Be good plus do right things equals a blessed life. And then Job comes along, and Job is a guy who did all of those things, and his life completely crumbles. Right? It's almost like the authors of the Bible are wrestling with the same things we do. Why do bad things happen to good people? Why do good things happen to bad people? How do we make sense of all these difficult things in the world? You go to the prophets. One prophet will say, it's time to beat your plowshares into swords. Take up arms. Then another prophet says, no, 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 it's time to beat our swords into plowshares. Right? They're both present in the text. And to me, that doesn't diminish what the Bible is. It actually heightens it. That The people who gave us the Bible believed that we could handle disagreement and tension within the text. They thought that we could handle our ancient ancestors saying, maybe it's this, and another one going, nope, I think it's this. They believed we could handle that. And, and then we came up with all these ideas about inerrancy and infallibility, and maybe the Bible fell out of the sky, and it muddied the waters tremendously, and it really robbed the Bible of the richness, which are the voices and the perspectives that make it what it is. So the Bible has many voices over about a thousand-year period of time, plus all the voices that are now talking about the Bible um, since then. Uh, the Bible also isn't an answer book or a roadmap to the end times. Um, If you read the Bible as a roadmap for the end times, you're doing violence to the text because you have to read it in such a way that's out of context and really creates a picture that none of the biblical authors would have understood or been interested in. So the Bible isn't about, although when I was a kid, that's how we read it. We had charts and maps and everything was about the end time, which was happening in the 80s and we knew it. (laughs) Slightly late. The Bible also isn't an answer book. So I brought something today for show and tell. This is... Magic 8-Ball. When I was a kid, I wasn't allowed to have one of these because witchcraft. And um, (laughs) y'all think I'm kidding. I ain't. This is true. Wasn't allowed to have one of these. And now that I'm an adult, sometimes I eat dessert before dinner, and I bought one of these because I can. um, Because I'm a grown-up. Nobody can tell me what to do. Um, But a lot of times we approach the Bible this way, right? Where we, we come in with a problem or a question, and we want the Bible to answer it. And so we'll just randomly read parts of the Bible, hit hit or miss here or there, looking for the answer, like, am I supposed to go out with so-and-so? Is this a sin or not? And we'll, you know, we'll shake it and we'll read it. 
We'll go to find a couple verses that that support the opinion we want it to be, and that's how we approach the Bible. When I was uh, in college, I guess my junior year, I got to serve on staff at the Christian camp I'd grown up going to. And um, I was on staff, and every morning we would get up before the kids would wake up to go to breakfast, and we would all go to breakfast, all the staff would go. And every morning we would walk into this dining lodge. Imagine a, a damp, musty, you can smell it almost, right? Like this, this old school dining lodge. We'd walk in there, and in the, fo- it wasn't a foyer, it was a lobby, I guess. In the place, uh, there was this big like, pulpit and a big family Bible, like the kind that could be used to bludgeon. You know what I'm talking about? Placed on that. And every morning we did this thing called dropping it, where somebody would walk over, close their eyes, open it, and randomly point to a verse, and that was the verse of the day. Now, I found a lot of hilarious things in the Bible through that process that have served me well comedically over the years. But it's a terrible way to read the Bible. Because what if you land on a verse that says, love your enemies? That's one thing. What if you land on a verse that says, you are responsible for exterminating all Canaanites? That's a dangerous way to read the Bible. The Bible needs context. The Bible needs to be shaped by its own context and then heard and responded to in our context, and it's just not that easy. And finally, I don't believe the Bible always shows us the best way or the final way or the the fullest way. I think what the Bible always does is point. Because if we believe the Bible shows us the fullest, most perfect way in everything, then we've got some real problems. Because the Bible seems okay with slavery at times. Right? The Bible just seems okay. The Bible seems okay in texts telling women that they have no role of leadership or speaking in the Christian community. It's in there. In certain places, the Bible seems okay with violence. Right? So if we want to believe that everything in the Bible is the fullest and final way, then we would actually be having to... And I saw an interaction on Twitter this week where somebody believed that, and they're trying to justify the Bible's defense of slavery. Just like, you have jumped the shark, Fonzie. You... Or else half the room doesn't know what I'm talking about, but you have Google. Um, You've completely missed the point. The Bible doesn't always show us the full and final way. I I think what the Bible gives us is trajectory. It shows us the the best way. We don't know what it is. It's still shrouded in mystery, but it's, it's this way. Like we're moving in that direction. For example, in the book of Deuteronomy, probably already read it today, but let me go ahead and tell you. Book of Deuteronomy, there's this text that talks about how to treat women you take as spoils of war. Does that sound like a relevant text for our everyday life? It's in there. In the text, it says, when you take a woman as spoils of war, here's what you do. You shave her hair, trim her fingernails, you give her a period of mourning, then you can go and have sex with her, and if she doesn't please you, you cannot sell her as a slave, because that would be wrong. You can just send her back. Now, how many of you would love to find the person who wrote that and just punch them in the throat? Is there anybody, anybody have that sort of... Now, here's the thing, though. Here's the thing. In that day and age, when women were viewed as property that you could do anything you want with, saying you can't sell this person was actually a step forward. As disgusting and barbaric as it is to us, and of course we wouldn't want to implement that, but to, to recognize they, they, were, they were starting the trajectory. And man, they aimed way too low. But they started, right? And it, it was moving somewhere. There's a text in the Bible that says, uh, eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. Anybody heard that text? In its culture moment, that was a radical text that limited violence that said, if somebody does something to you, you can only respond proportionately. So if somebody gouges out your eye, you then can gouge out one of their eyes, but not both, because it's eye for an eye. 
They knock out your tooth, you get one of their teeth. They kill your chicken, you kill their chicken. Not two of their chickens, just one chicken, right? So it's designed to limit the cultural impact of violence. But that same thing that was radical in its day to limit violence actually later became an excuse for violence. Oh, see, but I get get to do this. And maybe we can push the boundary, right? And then Jesus comes along and says, I for now, you've heard that said, but what I'm going to tell you is love your enemies because there's a better way. That was a trajectory, but if we say that that was the full and final, then we miss that we're actually still on a trajectory. A couple statements uh, I'd love, I want to just talk about that I hear. Um, this one used to be on a magnet on our fridge growing up. The Bible says it, I believe it, that settles it. Anybody heard that before? Um, nope, that's not how that works. That's not how it works. The Bible doesn't say anything. The Bible doesn't say anything. The Bible reads. We make the Bible say. Right? And the minute you say, you read a text and say, here's what I think it means, or here's what it means, you are now in the field of interpretation. It is impossible to read a text and say what's happening there without interpretation. Even the translations of the Bible we use are interpretations because words can mean different things in different in these ancient languages and you have to decide based on context and what your bias is which word you're going to translate it as. So it's a, it's a problematic deal, right? So it's not just the Bible. So the Bible doesn't say it. We read, we read the Bible, then we make the Bible say. We give the Bible voice by saying, here's what I think it means to live this text. Uh, the second thing is, I heard this growing up in sermons and I said it in sermons and I'm so deeply sorry to those people. This isn't my opinion, it's just what the Bible says. You ever heard somebody say, you know, I like that preacher because he doesn't tell me his opinion, he just tells me what the Bible says. It's usually said like that too. Like they're angry about it, right? Like he's gonna tell me what the Bible says. It's just impossible. It's just impossible. I will always tell you my opinion one million percent of the time because that's all I have. Now my opinion may be backed up with education and training and spending my life studying the text and reading other people who've studied the text. I think I have a generally well-informed opinion, right? But it's still that. It is an opinion. I do not have the authority to tell you this is the full and final meaning of the Bible because that is above my pay grade. There is no objective way to approach the text. You you and I will always be affected by our worldview. We'll be affected by our context. We'll be affected by the things that have shaped us. We'll be affected by all the things we've heard about the Bible that other people have said. So maybe I'm not telling you my opinion. Maybe I'm just telling you somebody else's opinion I believe, right? But it's still just an interpretation. And some interpretations are better than others. Can we just be honest about that? Some ways of reading the Bible are toxic and they just need to go away. And some readings of the Bible need to be amplified because they're more just and generous and kind and compassionate and they show us the ark better. They show us where this thing could go if we're willing to partner with God and bring love and compassion to bear on the world. But it's still an interpretation. We still move from a worldview. I think one of the great, gravest dangers we fall into, specifically if you're here and you're an American, one of the gravest dangers you, you'll ever encounter is reading the Bible thinking it's talking about you. It's when we go to the Bible and we read it and we're like, oh, that's God's word for us. Actually, the people who wrote those texts were people who were on the underside of power. There were people who knew only subjugation to an empire that was bigger and more powerful than them that used the sword to subjugate them. They only knew being on the the marginalized, powerless side. So when somebody in America goes to the text and reads it as if it's good news for us, it's actually written complaining about us. It's written praying that God would deliver them from us. It's not written saying, these are the good guys, let's be for them. No, no, it's saying, when you live in the largest economic and military superpower the world has ever known, 
The Bible isn't first and foremost speaking about you. We have to adjust our lens to get into the text to see what's actually going on. Right? We, have to, we have to begin to imagine, and people who have known marginalization, people who have known what it's like to be oppressed and forgotten and excluded from the table are sometimes the best people to go to to hear them read the text because they get it. Which means straight, white, cisgendered males should always be asking for help when they read the Bible. Because it is over our heads. Right? So the Bible is a much more complicated, messy thing than we have imagined. But I want to tell you what I think it is. And I want to tell you, we're going to talk about God's word, that, that title, in the next series. So I'm going to leave that alone. But I want to talk about what I think the Bible is and how it can inform spiritual practice. I, I think the Bible is sacramental. Or it can be sacramental. A sacrament is uh, also sometimes called a thin place. It's a place where you encounter divinity, you encounter the sacred, you encounter um, some sense of union with God. Any Frederick Beekner fans in the, in the house? Okay, a couple. I love this quote from Beekner. Uh, he says this, A sacrament is when something holy happens. It is transparent time, time which you can see through to something deep inside time. Needless to say, church isn't the only place where the holy happens. Sacramental moments can occur at any moment, any place, and to anybody. Watching something get born, a high school graduation. Have you ever been to a high school graduation that you thought was sacramental? <laughs> like literally every time I'm at a high school graduation, I want the clearest path to the parking lot so I can get out first, right? Uh, but, but uh, you know, I think his point is any place and any moment has the potential to be holy. And it's not whether or not we holy it up. It's whether or not we're engaged to see it. Somebody coming to see you when you're sick, a meal with people you love, looking into a stranger's eyes and finding out they're not a stranger. If we weren't blind as bats, we might see that life itself is sacramental. You are a walking, living, breathing sacrament. You are a place where heaven and earth meet. And when people encounter you, they are encountering the divine. And so, of course, when living, breathing, walking sacraments come to a text and they pick it up, of course it's sacramental. I do believe the Bible kind of helps us sometimes, pull us into that mind frame. I've heard people read scripture that I wanted to throw up after I heard it read, and I've also heard people read scripture that just felt like a bomb was being applied in that moment. I think we get to choose. We get to choose how we approach the text. And so if we take this view that the Bible is a place where we can encounter the sacred together, then what are a few things that that might mean? Well, first, I think the Bible is ultimately about meaning. When I was reconstructing and deconstructing, one of my biggest things was trying to figure out what was literal and what was not. Anybody else go through that? Like, what's literally true? What's not literally true? What can I, what can I say for sure? And that was maddening, and I didn't sleep a lot. And then somebody told me, I heard Marcus Borg say, believe whatever you want about whether or not these things happened like they're written. Let's now talk about what they mean. Because here's the thing, if you believe a dude got swallowed by a fish and lived there for three days, I mean, okay, (laughs) it's tough, but okay, you believe that. If you can't talk about what the story means, if you can't get to the point that says, this is a story that tells us if we do not learn to love our enemies, we will be destroyed by them, then what's the point? So I think the Bible invites us to ask questions about meaning. And so generally, if I'm not talking Bible nerd stuff with somebody, I just push those questions aside and I just come to a text and say, okay, what did it mean to them? And now what is it, what claim is it making on us? And what do we do with it in the world we live in? Like how do we embody this into the present? 
second, I, the Bible sort of invites us at two, two <laughs> levels, the individual level, which is sometimes complicated, and the communal level. Um, before the printing press, before the Protestant Reformation, Martin Luther, generally the Bible was only experienced in church and only one small select class of people could read the text, the priests, which was problematic. But when Luther did his thing, he sort of replaced the flesh and blood pope with a paper pope and everybody started worshiping the Bible, which is also a problem. Um, but yet there is this way I think the Bible is, can be helpful and important at an individual level. I do. I believe I read the Bible. Sometimes I read it just for fun. You know, I'm that kind of crazy wild person. Um, I do believe we've lost the art sometimes of reading it in community, reading it together. And I think that's where we make big decisions. And that's where we say this is what we think it means is when we're surrounded by each other and we're taking into account all of our experiences and all of our lenses. I think the Bible ultimately invites us into a story. And that, that story is the story of our spiritual ancestors. It's a story where they didn't get it all right, but they did point us in a direction. They gave us a trajectory. And now we're being invited to play our part. I know my, my grandfather was a free old Baptist preacher, and um, he died when I was 11 or 12. And I know that if he were here today, he would probably be very disappointed in all the things I believe because <laughs> it would be very different. But the thing he cared really a lot about that he talked about a lot was truth and wanting to preach and believe what was true. And we're both on that same journey. I think our ancestors were too. They, they didn't have it all figured out. They didn't have the full and final authority. But what they did have was a direction to point us in. Um, N.T. Wright talks about this, uh, the role we play in the Bible as imagining a Shakespearean play was found, but the last act is unfinished. He says, so what do you do? Do you just throw the play away or do you bring people in who are Shakespearean experts and you study it and you study it and you then find a way to finish the play and you act it out. And you don't just make up stuff, but you do it in such a way that it honors what came before it, but it takes it to where it needs to go. I think that's the role we've been given with the Bible. It's not to sit down and like worship the Bible, but it's to say it points us in a direction, and if we don't follow that direction, then we're, we're ignoring and shirking our responsibility. Our responsibility is not to pr just to repeat the pronouncements of the past. Our responsibility is to say new and fresh things for the future because there are new things that need to be said. There are bad readings of the Bible that need to go away. There are uh, dehumanizing readings of the Bible that need to be let go of. And the only way that happens is when somebody stands up with a fresh word and says, well, we think this is what could happen. If we see it this way, it actually is more liberating, more joyful, more compassionate, more kind. And, and what if the Bible is just trying to say, I, I truly believe if the biblical writers were all to come back and go in a room and find out that we invented something called inerrancy and fallibility, they would be just completely aghast. They, they would probably ask us, why aren't you doing your thing? Don't just read our thing, do your thing. Figure out your role in this. So what I'll say, and this is the last thing, I think the Bible functions as a launch pad, right? It's not so much of a place to land as a place to be launched. Um, I was also, besides Magic 8 Balls, I really wasn't around, allowed around trampolines very much as a kid. Um, I was kind of clumsy and our copay was high, so it just seemed... <laughs> seemed like, you know, the thing to do was to not be on those. But now we take our kids because we can do what we want because we're adults. We take our kids to a trampoline park where there are just trampolines everywhere and they can fling themselves in any way, shape, and form. And sometimes it's, you know, kind of ordered and they're playing dodgeball and then sometimes they're just screaming and hurtling through the air. And you're like, it's fine, right? Like, it's just a beautiful experience. I, I think that's more what the spiritual experience is supposed to be like. Uh, it's this thing that launches us into new levels of what it means to be human, into new levels of what it means to be a compassionate, kind, generous, divine, embodying being in the world. 
And so if you love the Bible and you want it back, if you can't stand the Bible and you're done with it, you both get invited to the table as we try to figure out what does it look like to be faithful people, to live into the Jesus way? What does it look like for us to take seriously the past? Absolutely. But what does it look like for us to forge and blaze new trails into a future that needs more love, that needs love, mercy, and compassion way more than I ever could have imagined it would? So what does that look like? And we get to do that together. Are you with me? Yes. All right. Let's pray. God, we are so, so grateful for everybody in this room who comes in bearing the divine image. And we're conscious today of the weight, the weight of the negative, the traumatic, the shame-bringing shame things the Bible has sometimes been used to bring into the world. And yet we also recognize that much good has been experienced its, its genesis in these same texts. And so for those of us who need peace with the scripture, whether that's peace from a distance or peace up close, our hope is that we can begin to find it. And as, as a community, as we imagine what the future of Christianity will look like, we realize that the future of Christianity is not just repeating things from the past, but it's also wrestling with what it looks like to be a fresh expression of the Jesus movement right here in our own time, place, and context. So give us the courage to do that. The courage to, to move out where the footing seems a little less sure and certain, where it feels like there's risk, where we may be unsure, but we know that wherever things are going, that's somewhere good. Give us that courage and that trust as we begin to imagine a better Christianity for a better world. We're grateful and we pray this in Jesus' name and everybody said.